church. Good morning. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Haggai, um, chapter 1. This can be found on page 743 of the Pewback Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible and need one, please feel free to take one home with you today. So Haggai, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag. Withholds. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house, that I may, make, I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I am got the week off uh, this week. I was down in uh, Southern Michigan at advanced uh, uh, preaching training and uh, kind of sharpening my own skills here as a preacher with other guys from around the country. Uh, which was really incredible. Uh, then I got to spend time with funny guys this weekend. Uh, out of our ministry, I just want to give a huge shout out to John Holderbaum. I don't know if he's in here, but oh my gosh, our ministry were well, pastored well. I was I was pastored well and fed 
incredibly well. Stephen Doors brisket and uh, man, Brandon street tacos. I mean, wow, if you missed out, I mean, it was an incredible time of fellowship. So, so thankful for uh, John and our team and putting that together. Uh, but I'm also really thankful for Josh Rashawn, our fearless youth director, who, oh, also, <laughs> who also agreed to step in and preach while I was out of town uh, this week. And so, Josh, why don't you come on up here? Uh, yeah, Josh has been um, a youth pastor for many years. Uh, he's down in his previous church. He is a seminary student at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary previously, and now he's over at Spring Arbor finishing up his counseling degree. And he also has apparently a secret preaching gift. Also, that I just learned about. And so I was like, being at Redemption City Church, we are a church that loves to train up pastors and preachers. That is a big part of our DNA. We're kind of like a training hospital. Those of you are hospital people, you know, hospitals have residencies. They're always training up the next generation. Something we love to do. And so I'm just, man, so excited to spend time with Josh uh, talking about. There's not a lot of guys who can geek out about nerd out on Haggai. Okay, there, there are a few people right, that are really that excited. So, man, Josh, I am really excited to have you come and bring God's word for us this morning. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, and just in working with 6th to 12th graders, uh, you just have to be a certain level of cool. So as I talk this morning, like really cool phrases just might fall out of my mouth. Like I just might like, period, gospel lit fam, dab on the devil. And it just like... <laughs> If you get lost, just like find someone young near you and, and they'll, they'll fill you in as we go, but I'm a, I'm a pretty cool guy. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, Haggai is just a not very often looked at, underappreciated book of the Bible, and I, I could tell by how much page turning I heard from all y'all. You're like, oh, now I'm, I'm in the next one, and now, oh, back in Daniel, um, Ezekiel, um, okay, okay. It's, you just miss it. It's no one tends to want to look at it. And God's people are in a unique time. It's an in-between book. God's people are in between the Babylonian exile and the birth narrative. And from reading the book of Haggai, this shows. And even though it's in the Old Testament, just like any other book of the Bible, this book is a Jesus book that points to the future kingdom that has been promised since David. And in fact, the rest of the minor prophets that we're going to cover in this series are going to live in this in-between time. They are no longer the Israelites. They have returned from Babylon and are now the Jews. So we've been going through this series. I just want to kind of recap it real quick. We looked at the book of Jonah, which highlights God's mercy. We looked at Amos, which highlights God's justice. We have Hosea, which highlights God's love. We have Micah, which highlights God's forgiveness. Zephaniah, which highlights God's singing. Nahum and Obadiah, God's judgment. Habakkuk, God's sovereignty, Joel, the Holy Spirit, and this morning we're going to look at Haggai, which highlights God's promises. And so the main point of the book of Haggai is this, that God's people, even in their fear and apathy, God comes to them and encourages them that he is with them, that they need to follow him, and that he will keep his promise of blessing the nations through Jesus. And along this journey, we have a certain outline we're going to follow. So for those that are just outline people, jot these down. I'll I'll stick to it pretty close. Uh, For those that need to focus a little better, uh, there you go. And for those that are ADHD, I'm going to have a lot of pictures, so I'll try to keep you informed (laughs) that way. Um, So we're going to see that in the first little section here that the temple is neglected. We're going to move on that the temple is restarted, but it's a big disappointment. 
The coming temple, we see in 6 through 9, will be even greater. And then the rest of the book is just this idea of how, because they built the temple, that will eventually lead to blessing in the short term and the long term. And finally, introductions. My pastoral aim for this sermon for you all, because you need to come away with something. I hope that the Spirit this morning helps you to see that you are personally loved and that you have a peace that comes from a Father who always keeps His promises, a Savior who died for us while we were still His enemy, and a Spirit that guides, transforms, and comforts us. Would you pray with me? God, we just thank you for this day and just for this opportunity to come, to open up your word, and to just hear you speak this morning. God, I pray that your spirit uh, just takes the words that, that comes from my mouth this morning, God, and just puts it on our hearts and transforms it into what we need to hear um, from you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So it seems here lately when I've been watching a show with my wife, this question comes up again and again, where in the timeline are we? And this might be because I watch a lot of Star Wars in our household, and it's because, like, you got to know what's going on. If the Mandalorian is in, you know, between, in the Clone Wars, things are kind of messed up. If the Mandalorian is, like, in a different spot. So you need to know when you're watching a show or reading a book of the Bible what the context is and where we find ourselves. And I mentioned earlier that we are in this in-between state, and so I want to get kind of a running start into how we got there. See, we've been in this series called The Minor Prophets, and they've been kind of in a a relatively the same place in the timeline. They've been kind of in this idea of there's good kings and there's bad kings, and God's people do the right thing, and then they don't do the right thing, and then there's this coming judgment that keeps circling around and around and around, and eventually it comes. This group called the Babylonians, a couple slides ahead, comes in at about 586 BC and they come in and they wipe out Jerusalem. They capture the people and they take them back to Babylon. And the way of the Babylonians when they conquered was to take the people group and just completely scrub away their identity. They were to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. That meant changing names. That meant discarding everything that had to do with their religion. That meant schooling for everybody. And this is what we see taking place in the book of Daniel. We get Daniel standing up to the dietary restrictions, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this Babylonian exile continues until this group called the Persians eventually comes in and they overthrow the Babylonians. And when you're a captured people group and there's the war going on and the dust has settled and the Persians are in charge, you just kind of sit there and go, well what are you going to do with us? You know, because sometimes captors kill their (laughs) captured people. And so the Persians had a little bit of a different mindset when when it came to conquering. What they thought was that their subjects were happiest if they were living in their own place, doing their own thing, worshiping the gods that they liked within reason. And that kind of just kept everybody happy in the kingdom. So they looked at the Jews and they said, yeah, you guys can go on home and live your lives as you were. And so they went home. And my question to kind of help think about this is like when you're coming home from a long trip, like a vacation or something, we all have that thing that we like to do. For some of us, it's the first thing you have to do is get everything inside. Your, your mind cannot be in ease, at ease until you get everything back in the house. 
Uh, for some of us, it's now you got to put everything away, and you got to get the laundry going, you got to reset your life. And for some of us, after a long trip, we go to the couch, and we have to relax and rest from our long, restful trip. I don't know. It's a little interesting. But the Jews find themselves in sort of a similar situation. They're coming home from a long trip, except they don't have a house to return to, right? The Babylonians wiped that off the face of the planet. And so when they come home, they're just looking at nothing, ruins. And so they appeal back to King Cyrus, who is the king at the time. And they said, hey, King Cyrus, could you please give us some money and some materials? We would like to build a temple. And Cyrus signs off on it, and the supplies show up, and they start building the temple. But then the enemies of God kind of start coming in, and they start poking at the Jews, and they get scared, and they realize they're drawing a lot of attention to themselves, and they stop building the temple. And then 16 years of this nothingness goes by, and that's where we pick up today in the book of Haggai. The temple building is stopped. It's 16 years later. So if you want to follow along on your devices, on your Bible, we're going to pick right back up in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, This is a really short book. You can read it in about seven minutes. So we're just going to go through it a few verses at a time, talk about it a little bit, and move on. And if you don't have a device or a Bible this morning, it'll be on the screen as well. So in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So in the book of Haggai, we get four main characters, excluding God. The four main people characters in this story is Zerubbabel. Okay, and Zerubbabel is technically the next in line to be the king, but he's the acting governor of Judah, because when you're a kingdom and you have King Darius, he's not going to let you have the name king. That's just not cool. So he is a governor at this point. We have Joshua, who is the high priest. We have Haggai, who is the teller of what is up on behalf of God. And then we have God's people, Slash the remnant is how they're referred to um, in this translation. It's everybody who came back from Persia. Some people stayed behind. This first group of people came back to Jerusalem to restart their lives. And remember, we picked up here that the building, the temple building has stopped. We're in point one for you point people, right? The temple is neglected. Cyrus gave them the oak. He gave them supplies. And what happened in the meantime, right? The Israelites took it and they built these awesome houses out of all the materials that was supposed to be for the temple. And I know when we read the word paneled houses that we go somewhere to the 70s with that really thin like particle board that's in a basement or in our grandmother's house, but the word for paneled houses is the same word that is used to describe the temple of Solomon. This is the good stuff, okay? This is not the thin, cheap stuff. This is the shiplap of the time, okay? And they took this, which was supposed to be for God, and they used it instead to build their own houses because they are letting fear and apathy rule over their lives, And for some of us here, we may be in different spots in our faith walk or even just have questions like, why is this temple thing such a big deal? Like, I get it at a certain extent, but they were without one for a while in Babylon, weren't they? Like, why all this emphasis on the temple? 
And to put it another way, and maybe give some credence to this, Eric Tolley puts it this way. What was so important about the temple? God's temple in Jerusalem was a constant reminder that he had chosen that city as a place of his particular presence and salvation. Therefore, the temple was closely connected to God's covenant relationship with his people. By not prioritizing the temple, the restored community was demonstrating a lack of interest in God's place among his people. And so God stirs them up through Haggai to rebuild the temple. Their priorities have shifted from God being first and foremost, and it shows. It shows in their actions, it shows in their priorities, because the intersection of heaven and earth, the dwelling place of God himself, sat in ruins while they were kicking it easy in their nice houses. God was not in the center of their lives, as evidenced by the lack of temple and their focus on their comfort. Let's keep reading in verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors." In verse 5, God gets in one of his first zingers in the book of Haggai. And for such a short book of the Bible, God's got a lot of zingers in this one. Consider your ways, right? Just that stopping point, right? And when you're, you're working on a sermon, sometimes the application, you're, you're, you're thinking really hard about it, and it doesn't jump out to you very easily. And other times the application just starts screaming, hey, I'm over here, and it, it presents itself very clearly. Have you ever been at a point in your life where God just grabs you by the shoulders, he spins you around, and he says, take a look at your life. And you go, oh, oh, I, I am an idiot. Okay, this, this makes sense that, that I've been doing it wrong this whole time. I've been living my life wrong. And for a lot of us, that's kind of our story of coming to faith, right? We have this realization that God's ways are better than our ways, and we examine our life, we consider our ways, and we see that this is a lot better, and we turn away and we go to it. And this idea of considering our ways shows up three times in the book of Haggai. So it's important to the people at the time, which probably means it's important to us as well. So let's do something about it. My ask this week, one of the things that I'd like you to do, is to ask God at some point each and every day to examine your ways. It's a simple prayer. Spirit, reveal to me and examine my ways. If you need to ground this in something different or maybe a little more biblical or just say this verse, you can look over at Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So in verses 6 through 8, what's, 
God details out for them what's been happening. They've been having crops that aren't growing right. They are lacking food, warmth, money. And God leads it up to the very reason. He displays it very clearly for them. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with their own house. Simply put, God's judgment was present among them because they refused to put him first in their lives, namely by building the temple. And the downsides are many when God's people do not follow in, their, in God's ways. See the rest of the Bible up till this point. Now, for our modern-day application, I think it's a bit coy, and I think it's a bit tiptoey to get too much into God's blessing while living his ways versus not. I mean, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tends to kind of flip that on its head. So I'll end this piece of Haggai like this, because I just think this is a good universal truth. Following Jesus makes life better, amen? Amen. All right, let's turn on to verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as their Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of God, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, and on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And so Haggai gives the word of the Lord in the first 11 verses, and then what happens? They do it! They do it! They start building the temple! Woo! Yeah! Temple! They did it! They followed God's directive, and they did what they wanted him to do, the first time, right? This is not that common in the minor prophets. Usually God has to say it again and again and again and again and again, right? But God just says it once and they build the temple. And, and in verse 12, we see a little bit about their heart and what God has to say to them. They obeyed, hooray, but also they feared the Lord. And this idea of fearing and obeying the Lord calls to mind Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 12 which says, assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Now, we don't have time to do it here, but the fear of the Lord is a worthwhile topic to research throughout and read in the scriptures. But I'll give you the brief version today. If God is who he says he is, he is meant to be revered and praised, right? This fear of God should honestly manifest itself in a very real way. After all, we are talking about the creator of the universe, all-powerful, outside of time and space, uh, God. But also, at the same time, this is a God who cares for us, who listens to us, who partners with us. He is a God who is worthy of honor and glory because he is powerful and because he is good. There's probably a song or two about that that's been written that we should really rejoice in. Okay. And as we continue on in verse 13, God's people get a big reminder of who he is, what he has done, and how he continues to interact with his people with this big phrase, this big divine blessing throughout all of scripture, I am with you. I am with you. 
God gives the same message to Isaac, to Jacob, to the Israelites, to Jeremiah. He gives similar language to Moses and Joshua and Gideon. Jesus says this a few times throughout his ministry. Do not fear. He ends Matthew 28 by saying, I am with you. I am with you. Do not fear. Honestly, if we consider our lives for a second, it's easy to get lost in the idea of God not being there. Whether that's now, present day, or even for the Old Testament people. You see, God's people, remember, just got out of exile, (laughs) where they were away from God for a big period of time. Where is God in all of that? God may feel distant to you at this moment because of sickness, because of hurt, because of death, because of a hopeless situation. The Jews at the time had not built the temple or follow God as of late, why would God be with them now? I think for us, when we look around, we see that this world is on fire, that it's broken, and we sometimes have to think and wonder, where is God in the midst of all of that? I mean, I know thinking about my life, I've been disobedient to God and not followed in his ways. Aren't you done with me? And every time, the answer is this. I am with you. Do not fear. To all those concerns and more, I am with you. Do not fear. So one of my takeaways for this week would be this. I pray that this week that the truth of that statement washes over you. That just as it did for Abraham, for Isaac, for the Jews, that in your fears, in your doubts, in your struggles, that you would remember that God is with you. Let's continue reading Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nation so the treasure of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai is a a really interesting, fun book because everything is dated in it. This is not common practice in the Old Testament prophets. And I'm not going to point them all out, but if you notice that each section of these, Haggai tells the date of what's going on. And so just to put us where we are now, they started building the temple, and now it has been about a month and 20 days after that process has started. So they're hard at work. There's got to be some stones laid. Everything's starting to come together a little bit when God speaks to them through Haggai again in this part that we just read about. So for my outline people, the temple building restarted, and it's now a disappointment. Because... No, because. But remember those zingers that I was talking about earlier, right? God gets another one in here. He challenges everyone about that temple they're building. 
you know, God just kind of looks at you and goes, hey, you know this temple that you're building right now? Do you guys remember what that old one looked like? Oh, so good. It just, it was immaculate, had all these pretty things, and, and this one that you're building, eh, not so much, right? God's like the equivalent of Pinterest shaming them here, right? That you had this idea of what it should look like, and this is kind of what it is looking like. And, and for the sake of, there's a lot of Pinterest fails, but for the sake of time, for the sake of time, we're going we're gonna to move on, um, Right? So this temple is not anything like Solomon's temple. No, for real, I'm going to get distracted. You got to take that down. Um, (laughs) Right? They started rebuilding the temple, and clear back 16 years ago when they started laying the initial stones for this temple, people started weeping. They started looking at that original temple that was being built, and they're like, this temple is awful. This temple sucks. Like, it's going to be nothing like we had before, and that might be some of the reason as well why they stopped and they never came back to it. They knew they couldn't build something as good as what was before. It can never compare to what it used to be. And this is the first of two times in the book of Haggai where God is going to use the bad to emphasize the good. He doesn't bring up how bad this temple is to make them feel bad, but rather he does it to say, even though your temple is nothing in comparison to Solomon's temple, guess what? Build it anyway. Guess what? You're going to keep working on it because I am with you. And on top of that, guess what? This temple is coming soon that is going to be even greater than Solomon's temple. So that what is to come will not only have all the riches of the world, it's not just going to be Solomon's temple 2.0, it's also going to ultimately bring peace. This kind of calls back some imagery from Isaiah chapter 60 verse 5, and it greatly puts into play the idea of this different time horizons that Mike has kept alluding to throughout the other minor prophets. Just meaning that like these fulfillments of when is this temple coming kind of takes place on a lot of different levels. So let's just look at that for a second. It kind of works in three ways here in my mind. That this coming temple will be greater than Solomon's temple. One of them, one of the time horizons that this takes place through is Jesus, right? Jesus mentions in John chapter 2, verse 18 through 22, that he is the temple. And with his arrival in Luke chapter 2, the angel of the Lord says this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, Peace among those to whom he is pleased. Okay? Another time horizon where this takes place is with us, right? We see all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians that we are God's temple. Paul keeps coming back to it again and again. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then finally, this last kind of time horizon where the, greater, the coming temple will be greater takes place is in Revelation 21, where a lot of our prophets are kind of throwing stones out and hitting. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We don't even need a building. We have God himself, the ultimate fulfillment, the coming temple that will be greater. And so, in my mind, in in my esteem, this is where the book of Haggai ends. And in this place, I will give peace. Right? The credits 
or sorry, the screen fades to black. The credits are going to be coming up any minute. It was a good, it's a good one, like we're ending with peace, right? But we realize that we are in the Bible version of the Return of the King Extended Edition, and as the black, and you think the credits are coming, it starts, the color starts fading back in, and there's more. There's another prophecy that comes to Haggai. So we're going to keep going. So in Haggai chapter 2, verse 10, it says this. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone, ca- if someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a, defiled, a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and the nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now, give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all of the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. This little piece of prophecy from the book of Haggai gets a lot of interesting takes from some Bible scholars. There's a lot of postulation about this being about some judgment of what they were doing in the process of building the temple. But the take that gets the most consensus, and honestly the one that's the most concrete for me because we're letting the Bible interpret itself, is the idea that this is the second time we see the tension buildup of the bad to show the good. And so as we find ourselves at the beginning of this verse, we start with the question, right? God lofts this question to the priest. Uh, can, of can something holy touching something else in turn make it holy, right? Priest huddle up. Is this a trick question? Ah, I don't think so. It's a pretty easy one. Just like, the holy thing touches the not holy thing and doesn't make it holy. Okay, no, okay. So no, no, okay? You know, ding, ding, ding. Yes, you got it. Good job. All right, Awesome. And then God goes, I have another question for you guys. If something unholy, if something unclean touches something, does that make that something unclean? This is a softball question. This is a question that's like so simple, a baby could, not a baby, but a child could answer it, right? The priests, without even having to consult each other, almost scream, no, or yes, yes. If something unholy touches something, it becomes unholy. It becomes unclean. And yet, God turns it back to them. He turns it on its head and he says, guess what? You and your worship are defiled. Okay? And the defilement and the judgments that you have been receiving, that have been going on before the building of this temple, is because of your lack of turning to God and making him the priority. Now, make no mistake. They worshiped God while they're in Babylon. They worshiped God in this 16 years between the starting, the stopping, and the re-beginning of the building of the temple. They've been worshiping God the whole time. But 
Have they been worshiping God with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength? Survey says no. Thank you. We give careful thought again to your ways again. Right? Sorry. sorry. We get the phrase, give careful thought to your ways again. And then we get a rehashing of everything that God has done to judge them. This is, in my estimation, a rehashing of the judgment that God was giving them when they had not been building the temple. And God's been going, hey, hey, can you bring it back? There's bad things happening. Maybe you need to change what you're doing. And yet, they did not return to him. And at this current place of time in the oracle, the Jews are still building the temple, a place where God can dwell among them, where they can go back to being the light of the nations, where they can go back to living in God's blessing. But in this little section here, God wants them to stop the building for a second. He wants everything to just take a pause and consider this. Do you want to go back to that? Do you want to go back to that dark time? I mean, if if you really think about it, you're not too far removed from Babylon. And and just consider how much better my ways are than your ways. And we get this big turn of phrase in this passage, from this day on, I will bless you. So fun little wordplay here. I want to show you something. The way the Hebrew reads here is, is so stark, right? From verse 19 to verse 15. When we're looking at verse 15, we get this idea of from this day on. And the, the Hebrew word that's used here is to reflect on everything up to this current point and before, right? From this day on, but with an emphasis on considering what has happened up to this point, right? The Net Bible puts it this way. Now, therefore, carefully reflect on the recent past, But when we step over to verse 19 and we get the phrase, from this day on again, the Hebrew here is very clear. There is no looking back at the past. There is no considering what has happened before. God is putting a line in the sand. He's saying, from this day on. The Net Bible puts it this way. Nevertheless, from today on, I will bless you. In spite of what's gone on before, I will bless you. And so... That's an awesome place to end, right? From this day on, I will bless you. And the the screen starts to fade to black again, and everyone starts getting up out of their chairs, and they're throwing away their popcorn. But then the color comes back, and and seemingly, if you you read the text here, like Haggai either had lunch or he played racquetball or something happened because he had two prophecies in the same day. I don't think you just like say it, and then you start to walk out of the room, and you're like, wait, God had one more thing. Okay, right? Something in the course of his day took place, and then he had another prophecy. Bible doesn't tell us what it is. We're not going to speculate. Okay, so... The word of the Lord in, chapter 20, in verse 20 come, came through Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel's son, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, declares the Lord, And I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. And so this time, we get the real ending, right? And and it's a good one, okay? I think for us, if we were to like pick our favorite ending, the one that resonates with us the most, it, it might be the fulfillment of God's temple in Jesus, us, and in the second coming of Jesus, right? It's probably the most exciting and the most tantalizing to us, 
Part of that's because we're an incarnation, a death, burial, resurrection, an ascension, and a Pentecost closer to that second coming than these people were. So it, it kind of just, and we are the temple of God. So it just really jumps out to us a lot more. But for God's people at this place, at this time, oh, this is a doozy. This is a good one. This is one that is worthy of celebration. Nah, I won't do it. It's worthy of celebration. They would have blown horns. Mine broke. All right. And understand why it it lies in the context. So let's take a look at this again. You got to remember that the Jews are coming back from Babylon. And currently, God's people are missing their king. I mean, sure, there's this this King Darius guy. um, But Zerubbabel is sitting in the second-rate job of governor, right? He's got some power, but he ain't no king. And according to his lineage, he is the rightful king. He is the continuation of the line of people leading to the Messiah, But Zerubbabel's current situation in the Jews' esteem might be because of the actions that were happening leading up to Babylon. The reason that Zerubbabel may not be the king, the Jews may have thought, may be because of this. Right before they went to Babylon, things were bad. Like, really, really bad. And in Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 through 25, God looks at the king of power in power at the time of Jerusalem, and he says this. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the Babylonians. Now, the signet ring was the representation of the king. It had an insignia in it that would be put in wax, and that insignia being on, whether it was a document or with a person, would show that this message or that this person was there on behalf of the king. And God was looking at Jehoiachin, who was the representative of God, who was the continuation of the line of David, and he said, nah, you're done. I'm casting you off that duty. You don't get that role anymore. And in a very real sense, God's people have to be wondering, is the promise of the coming Messiah over? Did we go too far? Did we mess it up this time? Is God done with us? And is he going to use somebody else? But God, faithful, promise-keeping, gracious, righteous God, uses the same language that he used back in Jeremiah chapter 22 to show them that the Davidic line was still in place that the coming Messiah, the one who would bring the healing, the hope, the restoration, and the kingdom was still going to come through the Jews. And that, my friend, is when the book slams shut. That is the triumphant ending, that God's people are still with him and that God's promises are still good, that God is still faithful. And so for you, this week as we close this morning, how are you keeping your eyes open to the faithfulness and to the promises of God? Some questions to think through that. Where are you at in the belief of this reality? Right? Where are you at? Do you truly wholeheartedly know and believe and understand that God is faithful and his promises are true? Or are you somewhere in the doubt of that? Because that answer could dictate us some of what you do with this question. Maybe for you this week, it's to start a prayer journal and just start recording prayers and then writing down when they get answered. 
Maybe you think back to some of your past writings, if you do that sort of thing, or maybe some of your life events, and you look for evidence of God and his faithfulness in your life and in those past things that you wrote about. Maybe you ask God to show you this week a mark of his faithfulness in your life. Or maybe for you, you just meet with somebody and you just share with them how God has been showing that he is faithful as of late. But something to think about is how are you keeping your eyes open to the faithfulness, to the promises of God? And the truth is this, God is faithful and he continues to be. And I hope today that in this short book that God, that you were able to see that God is who he says he is, that you were encouraged by God's grace and his steadfastness towards his people, I want to leave you with one more thought for the road. God is good. We need Jesus. And the Spirit lives in us today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. And we just thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to sing praises and to declare the truth of who you are and what you have done and what you continue to do. God, this morning, may we, and this week, may we just be encouraged and reminded of your peace, of your faithfulness, of your goodness, of your promises and that we would just constantly seek and look back to declare the truth of who you are. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.